All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1 is where we're going to start out here today. Uh, you know, over the past number of weeks, we've, we've really been looking, going through a series of looking at the low points in the life of David. We have so much information on the life of David, really more than almost any other biblical character uh, David, we've got essentially two full books of his life, and then and then many, many psalms, dozens of psalms that he wrote in the book of Psalms, recording for us his perspective on his own life. And it's really helpful to go back and look at the trials that David faced and to draw out of those trials and the way that he responded to them, the way that he turned to the Lord in the face of those trials, to draw some practical life lessons for ourselves and how we should be thinking through uh, the kinds of experiences that we have when we face the same sorts of low points as as David was facing. So we've we've done that over the course of several weeks. We've talked about how to deal with the disappointment of not having your expectations fulfilled. We've talked about how to make decisions that seem as though they are impossible decisions to make. How do you how do you go about prioritizing in a way that would honor the Lord? And here this morning, I want to uh, turn to this passage and look at how we are to handle law. How we are to handle loss and the grief that comes with that loss. Because as we open up to the book of 2 Samuel, we find David, having been on the run for essentially a decade, as he's growing in his relationship to the Lord, he's in danger that whole time. And over the course of that whole time, there was, uh, there was only one human relationship that for him was really sort of a, a constant and that was his relationship with his best friend and partner, Jonathan, the man that was Saul's son that had this very close relationship with David. These two men, they, they were the best of friends where they supported one another through difficult times. They communicated even when that became difficult. And, and this was really the closest human relationship that is recorded for us in David's life. And on the same day, we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 1, on the same day that David receives word that his troubles are finally over because Saul is dead, he also receives word that his best friend had died alongside his father, Saul. And David's world begins to spin because his enemy is dead, but so is his best friend. And, and how is he supposed to grieve this loss? The mix of emotions that would have hit him as he has the relief of being free from the penalty of death that had been placed upon him by King Saul with the intense sorrow and sadness that would have come from losing his best friend. This morning, as we look at that narrative I, I, and some associated psalms, I, I want us to draw some, some lessons that we can learn as we look at David's reaction to the question of how do we grieve properly? when we too lose people who are close to us that we love dearly? How would the Lord have us to grieve? Now, it is very true that there is not just one way to grieve in a way that would honor the Lord. Everyone is different, and the emotions that go through the human mind and the heart when you, when you lose someone who is close to you, they, they impact different people in, in different ways. And everyone processes those emotions, and they, they feel them differently, and they can even feel them differently to different degrees. And some people, they would seek to deal with their sorrow by just simply ignoring it and moving on. 
Whereas other times, some other people find that sorrow and that grief to be debilitating and destabilizing. One of the most difficult things, no matter how you go about processing grief, no matter how you work through those emotions, one of the most difficult things in life is surely the sorrow of losing a loved one. It can be overwhelming and it can make you feel like you're drowning in sorrow. And here, as we look at David's response to his sorrow, it's not meant for us to be a comprehensive guide to everything about grief, everything about sorrow. But as I think, as we go through this together, I think we'll see it does certainly contain some very pertinent principles that are critical for us to understand so that we can properly process the emotions that go through our hearts when we do lose those who are close to us. Because the reality is, all of us experience the loss of loved ones. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed to man once to die. And that is the one point of guaranteed commonality that every single one of us has with every single human being on the planet. And therefore, that means that, that if you live long enough, you are going to experience the loss of those who are close to you. It must happen barring the Lord's return. But everyone in this room has faced and will certainly face this reality. And so the question for us this morning is not, what do I need in order to navigate my grief? The more important question that I want us to answer is this, how does God want me to navigate my grief? Because grief and sorrow, though heavy, it doesn't have to drown you. There is a way for a surviving individual to navigate the turbulent emotions that come with loss. And that's really what I want us to think about here together this morning. How are we to grieve in a way that honors God? And there are key principles that we can see here from David's life. Now, we don't have time to go through all the details of what led to Jonathan's death. It's really a fascinating story that runs from chapter 27 of 1 Samuel all the way through chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. It's an amazing story of God's providence that I wish we could just stop and camp out on, but we don't have the ability to get that deep down into it because we have a lot of other ground to cover here today. But the short story is this. Israel and the Philistines, they, they go to war and they fight at a place called Gilboa. It's at the base of a mountain that's right in the middle of the land of Israel. If you've ever been there to Israel, you can still go to Mount Gilboa today as it looks out over the Jezreel Valley. And that valley was the place where the kings of the day always came to meet to war with one another because it's the flattest place in all the land of Israel. And there's mountains that surround it. And it's a valley that has had hundreds of battles, some that were very important to human history, all fought in that very same place. And as the Israelites and the Philistines begin to fight together, the Israelites led by Saul and his three sons, they go scrambling, their lines are shattered, and they try to go scrambling back up the mountainside at Gilboa, and they get, they get bogged down, and Saul goes down. And that whole narrative is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 31. The next day, as the Philistines are combing over the battlefield, they find Saul's body, they strip off his armor, they cut off his head, and they send his head and his armor back to their temple, 70 miles away on the coast. And then they take his body, and along with Jonathan's body and Jonathan's two brothers, and they move another 15 miles further inland toward the Jordan River, effectively cutting the nation in half. 
They take those bodies and they pin them to the wall, we're told, of the city of Beit Shan, which, if you've been to Israel, is a very high cone-shaped hill that looks out over the countryside for miles. And in doing this, the Philistines are making a statement to everyone in the land of Israel saying, not only have we split your nation down the middle, but we've pinned the body of your, so of your king and his sons to this wall and sending a statement then to the entire nation who can see these bodies hanging on this wall that we have, we have defeated you. We have beat you. His abused body is pinned to the wall for the whole nation to view. His defensive armor is over 100 miles away down in the city of the Philistines. The nation's cut in half. Philistines are roaming where they shouldn't have been through the very heart of Israel. And as Saul is sent literally in two different directions, David heart, David's heart surely follows those directions because it would have leapt at the news that the threat over his life is gone and that he was free but it just as quickly came crashing down to the ground as he hears that his best friend, Jonathan, is gone as well. And that can be seen in his response here in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1. David gets word, verse 17, we see the beginning of his response. I'll just read the next several verses here to get a, a jump start into the text. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, and the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offering. For where the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? See, David, as you read those verses, he is clearly a man whose heart is broken. He's feeling deep and profound grief at the loss of his friend. And I think it's important for us to examine how does David process that loss? You know, Ecclesiastes 7.2 tells us that it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of rejoicing and celebration. And oftentimes we hear that verse read and we say, seriously? How can that possibly be true? Well, David here this morning shows us. He's going to give us essentially four steps to grieving in a way that honors God. And the first step is the step of remembrance. And that is what we see him doing in exactly the verses that I just read to you. It's immediately obvious that there is genuine sorrow here that exists in David's heart. And it's a profound and true sadness 
What's most amazing about this is that it's not just sadness for his friend, but it's also sadness and grief for who? For Saul, for his sworn enemy. And that's the most shocking part. And, and with Saul, he, he mourns the loss of the good and he finds something positive to say about Saul because surely between Saul and David, there wasn't much positive to be said there. But David goes back and he remembers the life of Saul and he finds good things to say. And he states things that are facts in order to honor the memory of Saul. And more importantly, the position that Saul had held. With Jonathan, it's more than just a statement of fact. It's a personal grief. I mean, you can see the emotion pouring on there in in, in verse 1 of, of, I'm sorry, verse 26 of chapter 1, where David says, I mean, he just comes out and says it, I am distressed for you. The very first thing that David does in the process of going, going through his grief is to remember the lives of Saul and Jonathan. And he holds this impromptu double memorial service here in these verses. And in that memorial, he, he does a number of things. He, he honors Jonathan's life. He notes Jonathan's accomplishments. He indicates and acknowledges his own loss. And he, he expresses his affection for the memory of his brother. And these are, these are all appropriate things to do as you grieve the loss of a loved one. To honor a life, to remember the accomplishments, to express your affection for the one that you have lost. It's, it's interesting to see how David handles this here. He, he doesn't ignore the loss. He acknowledges it. He doesn't dwell on the wrong that had been done to him by Saul, but instead he seeks to honor the man whose life is over. He doesn't make up things that, that weren't true in order to glamorize Saul. He, he shoots straight and he finds something that is true and he clings to that and he remembers it. David here, he finds a way to honor both of these men. He takes time out of his crisis to stop and to raise up a monument to both of them. I think it's important for us to take note of the fact that David is doing this, that he's remembering these lives, because I think for us, sometimes we look at memorial services and we say, you know, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to go to those and to remember the loss that we've experienced because it makes us sad to a certain degree. That's true. But that's also very necessary. It's very necessary for us to go and pay respects and to remember those who we, whom we've lost because it's appropriate to honor a life that has been lost. It's appropriate to honestly remember the good about those lives. Why? Because God ordained those lives. Whether that life was used to honor God like Jonathan had, or whether it was used not to honor God like Saul had chosen to live, that life is still a life that was sovereignly created by God that was lived out under the gaze of God. And the sorrow that comes with remembering loss, it should always cause us to stop short and to think. And that's the reason why the author of Ecclesiastes says, it's better to go to the house of mourning. Because in that house of mourning, there are profound lessons for the living to take stock of. You see, remembrance that stops just at sorrow, 
that just honors a life and focuses on that life without pivoting to reflection upon the nature of who God is, that person is missing the point of remembrance. Because it's not just about honoring the individual. It's about honoring the God who created the life that that individual led. And it's critical for us as we remember those whom we lose to stop and take stock of who we are and who that God is. Now, this was driven home to me very clearly. Maybe six or seven years ago, my grandfather went to be with the Lord. And my grandfather was to me kind of a a hero of the faith. He was a big part of the reason why I pursued a life in ministry. And he helped me think through my calling to ministry. And I, I remember going to his, his funeral service and, and going to the memorial that was held as so many different people were talking about his life. It was an amazing experience. He started his ministry at a, at a small little church in the town where he had grown up. And then he had a life that was well-lived and well-used by the Lord. And after he had retired, that same church where he began his ministry found itself without a pastor. And so my grandfather, 60 years after having been there as a pastor, as a young man, came back to be the interim pastor at the very end of his life. And he finished very well, but it was there in that church where he had grown up that he, that he passed away. And, and his life was one that was worthy of commemorating. And God was surely honored there in his service. But for me, it was very personal because I, I can remember... My my grandfather is Richard Gregory, I think, the third, which makes me something like Richard Gregory the sixth, and, and all of, which is crazy, I know, but all of his ancestors, I think there were, no, he's the fourth, actually, I think, there were, there were three other Richard Gregories that were buried there in that small little town in uh, eastern Pennsylvania, and I can remember the day of his memorial service, the day that we went and put his body there in the ground, going around to all the different tombstones, that had the name Richard Gregory written on them. And I remember that night after the memorial service just being so overcome with emotion and reflection that I walked out of the church. No one knew that I had left. They were all busy doing their own thing. And as I stood there at the top of this parking lot that was on top of a hill looking out over this town where my grandfather had grown up, I knew there are four men who have the same name that I have, with whom I share actual genetic material. And they are all there before me in the ground, their lives over, having been lived to the fullest, having sought to honor the Lord. And it caused me to stop up short and say, <laughs> you, you thought you were trying to be faithful, but these men, their race is run. And look at how short life is. I mean, tombstones that go back to the late 1700s, right? All the way up through the present day, these men with my name is written there in stone in the ground. Lives over. And it was such a sobering moment for me to remember not just my grandfather, but his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather who had come before him. And it caused me to stop And to remember that this life isn't just about me. 
It's not just about what I'm seeking to do here. This life, this life is about honoring the God who made these lives, and I had better be sure to do that with mine. And that really is the point of stopping to remember a life that has been lost. It's not just about decrying or proclaiming the the greatness of the one who is no more. It's really about looking at their life and through that life, seeing a window into the heart of Christ who cares about and loves the individual that is lost. More personally, the God who cares about me. And one day I will lie where they lie and I will stand where they now stand. And it's important for me to reflect upon that. And so often, I think, we rush about from here to there and back again without ever stopping to recognize the sobriety or the brevity of life. Because you see, you only get one shot, and then it's over. So you better make it count. You better live it well. You'd better honor God. And that, that is a sobering reality that should cause us to reflect upon our own lives and our own relationship to God. And that is exactly what David does here. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, if you go down through the end of verse 27, David doesn't just remember Jonathan and get stuck there. That's how people get paralyzed in their grief. They fail to pivot to the Lord, where they dwell upon the loss without ever shifting their attention to the Creator. So to get the rest of David's response, you actually have to to shift texts just a little bit, and I want us to do that here together. Turn with me over to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is really the rest of the story because David's impromptu memorial service for Jonathan there, that's not the end of his response to the loss that he had experienced. If that was the end, that kind of grief would have been crippling. But David doesn't stop just by remembering. He goes on. And in Psalm 18, we find the second step that he takes in dealing with his grief. He seeks to find refuge in the Lord. Look at the superscription that's given to us there in verse 18, just that, that kind of introductory statement. It's the longest historical introductory statement in the entire Psalter. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said. So the guy who wrote the psalm wanted us to know when this psalm was written. It was written on the day that David received word that Saul was dead. So David said the things back in 2 Samuel 1, but he also on that same day said everything in Psalm 18. And here is what he said, because this really becomes the theological diary of David's loss. And what does he do? This is the second step. He takes refuge. He doesn't just remember his loss, but he takes refuge. And where does he take refuge? He takes refuge clearly in the Lord. In verses 1 through 19, those first 19 verses are all about his refuge. You see, the threat is gone, and that's what's most interesting. Saul is gone, and yet David here in these first 20 verses is still hiding himself in his refuge in his God. It's not because he's any longer in physical danger. It's a refuge from the loss and grief. Look at the first five verses. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. You are my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 
I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of godliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. Right away here, you see this very personal faith that he has in the face of desperate times. It's it's really very intense. Nine times in five verses, he says something to the effect of, you are my, you are my. It's the picture of a man who is clinging to the truth of who his God was and who he knew his God to be from his prior experience was a God in whom he could take refuge. He says, I love you, Lord. That word there for love right away in verse one, it's the only time in all of Psalms that this word is used in this way. It's a word that is typically used of God's love for man. But here David is saying, I love you like you love me. It it expresses a particularly intimate meaning. When David's grief threatens him, threatens to overrun him, where does he go? He goes to the only safe place he knows. He doesn't stay in the field of his sorrows where he's vulnerable. He runs to the God who is his rock, who had already proven to be a refuge. See, God's identity here is bound up in some very strong words. These nouns all rename God, and they note that he is a place of shelter. David calls him a rock, a place of natural protection. He calls him a fortress, a high tower. He calls him a shield, the only place of protection in the face of a battle. He calls him the horn of his salvation, which is a a picture of great power. And you see, what's going on here is that when David finds his heart grieving, He turns to his refuge and knows that his only refuge is found in the power of who God is. Despite the desperation of where he's been, the magnitude of what he's lost, what he knows to be true of God leads up to the conclusion in verse 3 that you are the only one who is worthy to be praised. That didn't mean that the events that had led him there had been easy. I mean, the picture that he gives in verses four and five are a picture of a man who's being tied down underwater, where he's held by cords underneath the torrents. And in verses four and five, he recalls the days when when he was shouting and screaming for help. And he says, I was a dead man walking. And yet you heard me. Look at verse six. He recounts what had already taken place in his life. He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And in his day of trouble, as all those troubles and all those griefs washed over his soul, and he cries out to God saying, deliver me. God seems so far away. His question was, will God hear? Will he do anything? This really, that's the same question that pretty much everybody asks when they're found in the valley of the shadow of death when they're confronted by evil, difficulty, disaster, when choking on the loss, the profound sorrow of a loss, when you ask for deliverance, it's easy to wonder. I'm praying. I'm asking for his help. I'm I'm asking to take refuge in the shadow of his wings, but is my prayer actually getting through? Look at what the next part of verse six says. I cried to my God for help. Did it get through? It's very soft. The dynamic changes in the verse. And he, he heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him. I love this way he says it here. It it came into his ears. 
picture is it, it very softly, my cry from underneath that water as I'm drowning in my grief, my cry filtered into his ears. And he heard. And what's the result of God hearing? Look at the epic scale of God's response as the power of God, the raw, unvarnished power of who he is. It dwarfs the lonely and solitary grieving figure of David as as the psalmist has to combine the imagery of an earthquake, a thunderstorm, a, a, a volcano, and a tornado all wrapped up into one in the next verses here. Watch what he says. When God hears David's cry and his grief, Watch what happens. Look at the power of God that is evidenced on behalf of David. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed down the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him. Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. And with all of that great power on display, look what God does in verse 16 for David. He sent from on high. He took me and drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but uh, the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place, and he rescued me because he delighted in me. When this great, grand, awesome God arrives on the scene of David's calamity, what happens? With a volcanic storm, he comes, he reaches, he takes, and he draws David from the cords of death, from the torrents of destruction, and from the grief that had overwhelmed him, and he delivers him. And I think the lesson we can walk away with here is that when the waves of sorrow wash over you, and your loss is unspeakable, and you don't know where to turn, Turn to the Lord. Why? For two reasons. Because he is the only one who is qualified to relieve you in the midst of your pain and suffering. And as you think about your life, you'll remember that he has already proven his ability to do it. So take refuge in him. And when you take refuge in the Lord, whether it's refuge from danger, trial, or loss, you will never be disappointed in his response. You see, remembering the life the loss of a loved one. It should always cause you to take refuge in the Lord. Whether it's refuge from danger, trial, or loss, you will never be disappointed in his response. And as a refuge, when we hide ourselves in him, it should always then cause us to realign and reprioritize. And that's really the third step that David gives us. He remembers his loss. He honors the life. He seeks refuge out in the person of his God. And then he begins to realign himself as well. Look at what happens in verses 20 through 29. 
This is the heart of the psalm where David reviews his life and he takes stock of his desires. He reviews, he says in verse 20, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. You see, David looks at his life and he says, I have devoted myself to righteousness, to obedience, to blamelessness, to purity, to walking in a way that would be pure and blameless before the eyes of the Lord. And as you zoom in there to verse 24, and there's so much more about this psalm that we could say, but we, we're just moving pretty quick here through it. It's 50 verses after all. But verse 24, he says, I, I am seeking to live before the eyes of the Lord. And I think that's a critical point for us to make. Because going to the house of mourning and taking stock of the brevity of life and the gravity of eternity, it should cause us to renew our awareness that God sees your life today. Because so often we think about the day that we're going to stand before him as being the moment that counts. But in reality, he sees every moment and they all count. And that's the lesson of the funeral service. It's not just the way that you are on the day that you die that matters. It's the way that you are on this day because all of it is before his eyes. And he sees it all. Reflecting upon what it means to stand before his throne, you see, it should cause us to change the way that we walk before his gaze today. You know, yesterday here at the church, there was a memorial service for Doris White, who is Darlene Johnson's mother, Jetty's grandmother, actually. And it was, it was a beautiful service because it was a testimony of a woman that I really didn't know all that well. And yet the testimony of her service was of a life that sought to quietly live and honor Christ well. And for me, there, there was no way to walk out of that room without stopping to think, does my life honor Christ the way that it should? Because the testimony of her life challenges me to do that today. And what do I need to do to realign my own life so that it is fully optimized to the glory of God? And that's what David does here as he mourns. He begins to realign his priorities. In verses 25 through 30, he reviews and reflects on who he is and where he's been and what he's been trying to do. But then he continues on in these verses, 25 through 30, and he, he recommits himself to a life that continues to pursue uprightness. And he says, Lord, I desire to be merciful because you are merciful to those who are merciful. I desire to be blameless because, because you are blameless towards those who show themselves blameless. I desire to be pure because you show yourself to be pure to those who are pure. I desire to be humble because you despise haughty eyes. I desire to have a life of faith because you're the one who lights my lamp. David here, he, as he realigns his life, he, he takes a hard look at himself and he makes some adjustments. And this is ultimately the response that all of us should have when we reflect upon loss. It should cause us to, to look within ourselves and prepare our hearts for the day when we too will stand before God and give an account. 
we must ask ourselves the question, what will he think of me? And therefore, what must I change? Ecclesiastes 7.2 says that the reason why the house of mourning is a good place to go is because death is the end of every man, and those who are still living should take that to heart. They should look at their lives. You see, the biblical reaction to loss is to take the time to honor the life and remember them, to find refuge in God, our Father, and then begin to realign our priorities in light of eternity. And that's what David does here. And every time you remember the loss of a loved one, it should cause you to ask whether or not you're ready to stand before God just like they did. David goes on and he gives us really a fourth and final point. And it's, it's the most encouraging one of all. Because his fourth step is to cling to his redemption. Right? He, he remembers his loss. He realigns his life. And here he clings to the redemption that is brought about by God. And this is what I love. Is that everything we've talked about. Taking refuge in God. Realigning priorities. It, 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 it helps us know how to move forward. But it doesn't erase the pain that we feel. And yet that is the purpose of our redemption. And David ends with a note of incredible hope here because he says, look, once you've realigned the way you walk, then you can look forward to the day when your redemption is going to be complete. And it's that process, finding refuge in God and taking time to uh, adjust the priorities of your life. And, and painful though that can be, it's that process that will bring you to the place of rest and peace knowing that it is not you who can save yourself. It is not you who will ultimately be restored and reunited with your loved one. That's not on you. That's on God. He is the one who can redeem you. Why? Because this world and this pain, this loss, it's not the end of the story. The end is yet to come. And in the end, we find a Savior who will redeem us. And that is the source of our hope. We don't have time to read all the way through verses 30 through 50, but in those verses, David talks about over and over and over again, the salvation that God has brought him, the salvation that God will bring him, and the salvation that God himself will complete in David. It's very fast moving, those last 20 verses. As the tempo of the grammar and the poetry picks up, he says, look, everything I have that could possibly comfort me, all of it came from God. Verse 30, the truth came from God. 31, his protection came from him. 32, strength comes from him. Blamelessness comes from him. Verse 33, the speed that David needed to outrun Saul came from him. Verse 34, the direction came from God. And all of these things, you can keep going through all of those verses. God had provided David with everything that he needed. And that brings David down to his conclusion in verse 46 with this outburst that says, God, <laughs> my best friend is dead, but you live. Look what he says in verse 46. The Lord lives. Therefore, blessed be my rock and exalted be the God who will bring about my own salvation. And that is his source of hope. 
where he starts the psalm saying, I love you, Lord. Here he ends by saying, and you're the one who lives for all eternity, and you are the one who will extend that eternal life to me as well. He says, you give great deliverance to your king. You show loving kindness to your anointed, to David and his descendants forever. This is the point of this final section. God is faithful to save. And I can think of no more comforting reality when faced with the trauma of a loss that God is faithful to save. See, when we lose loved ones, we can rest confidently that God always saves those who trust in him. And when we feel the pain of separation, we can eagerly anticipate the reunion that will come when he rescues us from the jaws of death, not just reunion with those who also have gone before us, have loved and feared him and put their trust in Christ, but, but more importantly, our reunion, not just with those whom we've lost, but with him personally. See, our God is a God who saves. And it's that knowledge that enables us to say, when surrounded by the cords of death, God, you live. And you are the God of my salvation. And these are the steps that David goes through as he seeks to process his grief in a way that honors God. He remembers, he seeks refuge, he realigns, and then he clings to his redemption. And there's one last question that I have for the author of Second Samuel chapter 1. Why didn't that author include Psalm 18 in the narrative of Second Samuel 1? Because it's the theology that gives us so much hope. Why was the theological weight of David's response to his grief chopped off from the narrative? Well, the author did it on purpose, actually. And it was because he wanted to save David's response to the very end of his book. And if you fast forward all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, Psalm 18 is actually quoted in its entirety just before the author records the last words of David. You see, this is so powerful. As David seeks refuge and realigns and clings to his redemption, that the psalmist says, this is actually the grand finale of David's own life. And out of all the psalms that David wrote, this one is the one that's chosen for David's own memorial service. Why? because it was the record of his own life. As he went through that process of refuge, realignment, redemption, David mourns his loss correctly. And in the process, he ends up generating a roadmap for the alignment of his own priorities with God's priorities. And, and that realignment would define the rest of his life, so much so that this theological record is actually the, the summation of his life. It was a pathway that would lead him to the point where he could stand before the Lord with confidence, knowing that God, his refuge, would redeem his life from the clutches of death. And that's the reason why the house of mourning and its lessons are so very valuable for us. Because the lessons that we learn through the pain of loss, though difficult, they are the very lessons that draw us near to the Lord that cause us to assess ourselves and understand, am I walking correctly? They're the very lessons that prepare us to meet our great God. So use your grief in a way that honors the Lord. Loss is hard. 
when you process it God's way, it can be so very valuable in drawing you closer to your creator because the day is creeping up on you when you too will stand before him. Take that to heart. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. It's so very practical as we look into its pages to instruct us on how we should now live because the day will come when we too will die. So Lord, may we be those who are faithful. May we think rightly about our life as we seek to walk before you. And may we take comfort when we mourn those whom we have lost. May we cling to Christ, our refuge and redemption. May we find our encouragement and hope in him and his work on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.